Well, thank you for the music this morning to prepare our hearts. We're going to take our Bibles together to 1 John chapter 1, launching a new te- teaching series this morning from the book of 1 John, a letter that, Paul, or that John wrote uh, to the churches of Asia Minor. He was very concerned about some things that were going on, and so he would spend a great deal of time writing these words uh, of encouragement facing against the false teachings of Gnosticism. And so for the next several weeks, probably a couple of months, as we go verse by verse traveling through this letter, we're going to see how even in our own Christian life or in our life in general, we see that if if God is genuine, if he is real, if we believe that he lived here on earth and that he died the death that is claimed by historical proof and God's absolute truth of his word, and that he became victorious over death and judgment and sin... And if he extended his grace to us that we might be a part of his family, if Jesus Christ became the very substitute for our life and God drew us to himself and gave us that salvation, boy, we have a lot to be thankful for. And our life should not be one that is lived in just a minimal way for God. It should be one that we live very passionately for him. John is going to write this letter and he literally is going to help Christians to be able to prove it. Prove that they love people. Prove that they love God. We may say that we love people, but do we sacrifice? We say we love God, but do we passionately live for Him, even to the extent where it causes us to be stretched, taken out of our comfort zone, and maybe used by Him in whatever capacity He calls for? So as we travel through this book, it's really important for us to understand that John is writing this letter in the latter part of his life. He's probably in Ephesus. He references the audience that he's writing to often as little children, which implies that he was probably much older than they. And as he would write this, it may have been that he was responsible to lead them to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. And so he's referencing in such a way that he wants to help them to be aware of the dangers that are all around them with false teaching. So this is the latter part of the first century. This belief of Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And this belief system was taking into some thoughts that came from pagan as well as Jewish tradition and some so-called Christian beliefs. And so he was kind of throwing it all together to come up with this belief, this system, this thought process called Gnosticism. Now, there's something really important about this Gnosticism in the end of first century is that they were were saying that Jesus was not God in man form, so that they did not believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So they took Christ as a God, but did not take him as God. And so this became a very dangerous thought process for these Christians in Asia Minor, scattered about all the churches, and that's who John is writing to. And he says, beware, because this teaching is all over the place. They also, in Gnosticism, had this crazy belief that only the spiritual elite would be given some knowledge of the divine, and that that would always trump the word of God. And so this thought process became something that people tapped into. It's what they would follow. And honestly, when we look at some of those descriptions, Gnosticism isn't much different than some of the false teachings of today. 
For many people would say that Jesus was just a God or some good man or some prophet, that Jesus Christ was not God himself. Others would say they don't even believe in Jesus Christ. Some would say God's word is old and ancient and has no reason for our life today. Some would even make the claim that this whole religion thing is just some crutch that people use to appease their conscience and hope that there's something greater beyond this life. And we call those people... Empty and hopeless because they're looking for some way for self-gratification, self-salvation, some sense of self-security. God created in all of us the abilities to believe in a greater being. He gave us the draw, the desire and passion to worship and follow something greater than ourselves. But many will reject that as being God. And so what some people will do is they will pursue other avenues of worship. And so they'll take on a career that gets their full passion and desires, and energy, and focus. Some people, it's all about money. Some, it's about substances that they put into their life that gives them just a moment of ease and relief. Others turn to sexuality. Others are turning to relationships. Others are looking in every direction possible other than up to God the Creator. And so John is really aware of the dangers of this teaching to the churches, to the Christians in Asia Minor. And that's where he writes this letter here sitting in Ephesus. Now let's jump into 1 John chapter 1. And we're just going to look at the first four verses today by way of kind of an introduction, okay? So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Verse 2, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So today we're going to look at this thought here, that's for sure, that's for sure. Father, as we dig into your text today, this is the power of the Word of God that we need in our life. It is the the very elements that we need to just pause our busy minds with being distracted from other things. And so, Lord, I would just pray that in the calmness of our spirit, you would teach us today. I know that there may be some here who've never experienced your forgiveness, your restoration, your renewal, and your transformation. And so my prayer today would be that their, their minds would be engaged, their ears attentive, not to me as a communicator, but to you as the one who gives us your message. So use this study through 1 John to help us as Christians to take the next step of growth, help us to be authentic and genuine, help us to see that there should be evidence in our life that proves the very fact that we are a part of who you are and you are every part of who we are. So as we dig in even to this part and look at to that's for sure, I thank you for the sureties, the certainties, the realities here in this text. Now guide us with your thoughts in Jesus' name, amen. See, number one, we're going to see here that the eternal existence of Jesus Christ in verse number one, as he introduces this letter, John makes a very important 
make of what he is, he is writing about. The John chapter 1, even in the letter or in the gospel that he wrote, his same author, you know the, the books of the Bible, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, same author wrote John chapter 1 that wrote here this letter. And he said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, that word word refers to Jesus Christ. So he says, in the beginning was Jesus Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ was God. Then he continues on in verse number two by giving us some very key proof and evidence. He said, the same was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ was there in the beginning in the creation of all world and mankind. All things were made by him and without him was not anything that was made. Here's the preeminence of Jesus Christ there at the creation with God the Father because Jesus is God. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here, the passage correlates well with what he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor in chapter 1, verse number 1, that he which was from the beginning. Now, Jesus Christ did not have a beginning moment. Jesus Christ is eternal, always existed. There became that time where he came here to earth to be born into that baby in the manger, and we would see that man-child come and grow in order to live a life here on earth to become the ultimate sacrifice for us. But here's the two thoughts under this, is that the message of redemption is unchangeable. Because Jesus Christ is eternal, the message of redemption is unchangeable changeable. This message of redemption is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried as clear evidence of his death. And then three days later, God brought him, resurrected him from the dead, and he became victorious over sin, death, and judgment. And the devil lost and Jesus won. And then he made himself known to hundreds of people here on earth as clear evidence of his death, burial, but resurrection. And then he ascended, Acts chapter 1, ascended to heaven in the viewpoint of the disciples as they watched him ascend to heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. So the eternal existence of Jesus was that he was always from the beginning, and that means that the message of redemption, the gospel, is unchangeable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. This is a message that is important for us that was written in Hebrews 13. For it is good thing that the heart be established with grace. Hey, hey church, let's be careful that we don't grab a hold of every new thing that's out there. A couple of weeks ago when we, we painted the picture very clearly on a Sunday night about the dangers of the Jehovah's Witness belief is that they trace back a beginning moment where men thought, I don't really like what the Bible teaches because I don't like that in my own life. And so let's kind of tweak it and twist it. And so they'll change the scriptures, but then even their own Watchtower magazine, flip through the pages and read man's words, trump the Bible that they use. And that had in the beginning. All of the false religions of the world trace back to a beginning. The message of redemption is unchangeable Because there was never a beginning of God or Jesus Christ. He is eternal. So those who have always proclaimed the gospel, 
have instructed faith and repentance, those who have declared the kingdom of God is at hand, and those who have announced the merciful and gracious availability of divine forgiveness, and those who have urged sinners to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, this message from all time past has never, ever changed. That's why we would say that the gospel message is the same. Methods may be different today in how we, um, how we speak it or how we proclaim it or the conversations we have, but the message never changes. Secondly, the message of redemption is confirmed by the historical proof. John lists here in verse number one four ways that he had perceived the word of life, Jesus Christ himself. Look at the verse again. He says, he says which we have heard. So he heard the Lord speak himself. He heard his voice, his words. John heard the parables, the sermons, the private words of instruction and counsel from Jesus Christ. Here was a man with historical reference that would remember the moments he spent with Jesus here on earth, hearing his voice and his teaching. That, that word or that phrase, have heard, it translates as a perfect tense because it's a, a verb indicating a completed event or a completed task of something in the past that has an effect in the present. We would use a word like, I remember the birth of my child. And the birth of your child as a memory, you were there, you experienced that, and you remember the details of that, it has now a great change or an impact in your present. There's a lot of things that that one event has done to your present. Or you might say, I remember, um, I remember my, my wedding. I remember that experience. And you don't get married every day so that you feel married today, but you remember the vows and the covenant that you made in that ceremony, which now has impacted, may some of you, it was 50, 60 years ago, some of you, it was 10, 20 years ago. Some of you, it was last year, whatever it might be. But that event has a current effect on your present. That's where this word is, have heard. He said the impact of those moments of hearing Jesus has a present impact on my life. Then he, we see here that John says, and seen with our eyes. I see the same perfect tense as suggesting a past completed action with a present ongoing impact. How many of you would say you can remember seeing something 10, 15, 20 years ago and it still has a really major impact on you today? Would anybody raise your hand? There's plenty of you in here. You remember seeing something and you experienced that with your eyes and seeing that and now it has an impact on your present this is an indication that John added with our eyes to make it clear that he was referring to the physical appearance. Somebody would say, oh, you only heard him, so you just heard voices in your mind. No, John says, not only did I hear him, but I saw him. Another historical reference here. Thirdly, in that verse, he says, we have heard him, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. This word involves more than just a mere glance or a quick look. Instead, it means a long, searching gaze. It's the same word. It's the same Greek word in John 1, verse 14, which says, and we beheld 
his glory. It's something that's mesmerizing. It's something that is captivating. It's something that grabs your attention. We have a very difficult time in our day and age now, in our society and in our life. We have a very difficult time referencing, looking upon something, a gaze, a, 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 a pondering, a beholding. Because we're so used to, with short attention spans, we're just so used to jumping to the next thing. It's hard for our eyes to engage, and that's why Facebook videos are 20 seconds long. If it's longer, we flip through it, and like, oh, I'm bored now, and even though it might have had something really good at the end. Uh, now we've got to have commercials interrupting. We don't want the commercials to be too long. Uh, we find it very difficult to sit in a very calm setting, just to be engaged with our eyes in something without pulling out our phone or our iPads or getting a scribbling paper out or doing something so we have a very difficult time referencing what does it mean to behold or to gaze or to look upon, but John is referencing here as something they could not take their eyes off of, something that mesmerized them, something that connected them, and something they beheld. And then fourth in this verse, he says, we, with our hands we have handled of the word of life of Jesus. And so the meaning of the word handled gives us the idea of, of of a blind man searching for the next sense of security, uh, looking out with their, with their touch. And this is the disciples as they would touch the Lord on, on many occasions, maybe as they would come back from something and see Jesus and whatever greeting, whether it was a hug or whether it was a, a fist bump or whether it was a handshake, I'm not too sure, maybe that's where the fist bump came. Um, but the disciples had that initial touch this was a, a, a touch that did something for their spirit. Remember the grip that Peter longed for as he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink and the hand of God gripped a hold of him. Remember John would reference being able to, to lay his head against the body of Christ in conversation. It's the same that Thomas would come and touch the side of Jesus to see the spear wounds after the cross and to see his hands with those left by the nails. This is the touch that he references here. The eternal existence of Jesus in, in this given great, it's given us great validity to where we stand and why we believe. If we believed in a man-made God, it would not give us hope. If we believed in some make-believe God, fictional God, uh, we would find ourselves wondering what is next. But you're sitting among people who have found great confidence in the Lord. They have ups and downs and bumps and bruises in life. They have heartache and discouragements, and they have peaks of joy. They experience all angles of emotions in their life, but where they find their sense of stability is that we worship and follow an eternal God, a God who doesn't change, a God who is not shaped by man, a God who is not guided by our desires, but a God who gives us hope and confidence. So the gospel message that we share with the hopeless is that we want you to experience God's grace in your life. We want you to experience his transformation. We want you to see a life made new, not a wand sprinkled over your head that says, boom, everything's going to be good, but a life through the scripture that says, let's take steps of growth. The second thing in verse number two is that we see the experience of Jesus. You can really tell that John had a personal experience with Jesus, that he, he just wanted to share it with everyone. 
He would write his gospel just like that. He would write this letter in that same way. He is going to use six times in this letter alone the phrase, born of God. It's interesting about people who experience something so life-changing and exciting that they just want to tell you. I remember as a youth pastor and coming back with the teenagers from a week at the wilds, and we'd come back, and, and, and then the parents, I'd see the parents a couple of days later after the kids came home, and they'd say, man, what a great week of camp. They have not stopped talking since they got home. The only time they stopped, to ta- uh, stopped talking was when they finally fell asleep, and then they woke up talking about it more. Why? Because it was something so exciting and life-changing. We know what that's like. I remember back in the, in the late 90s after I had met Natalie Moore, and I had to tell all my guy, all my buddies, all my friends, I just had to tell all of them about Natalie, and I had to tell them about who she was, and there she is walking across campus and, and uh, pointing to her and hoping she doesn't see me and, and all these things. And I'd say to my best friend, I'd say, I'm going to marry her one day. He's like, do you know her last name? I'm like, not yet, but I know I'm going to marry her one day. I was in the, uh, the big cafeteria where we ate. But here's John. He is so excited about life change. And he would write in his gospel, he'd said, except a man be born again. He said, Jesus said, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, unless you see Jesus Christ as the only way, truth, and life, you can't come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And he says, and except a man be born again. There was a religious guy named Zacchaeus, and he was a smart guy. And he knew all the law and had a lot memorized from the Bible. And when he came to Jesus and said, what do I do? I see you do incredible works, and there's so many incredible things coming out of your mouth with your teaching. There is something different about you. And Zacchaeus didn't want all of his friends to know that he was there. And in the quietness of the night, he would look and see if he could find just a little nugget of truth that would help him with some hope. And that's when Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how does a man be born again? Can he enter into the womb a second time? And he says, no, you're not baptized, or you're not born of water again. You're born of the Spirit. And that Spirit takes a hold of your life, and it is giving everything to Jesus Christ. He says, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And so John would write his gospel so passionately about that. And as he would write this letter to the people in Asia Minor and to all the Christians, he would remind them of our experience with Jesus Christ. You may say, I just need some evidence. I just need some evidence about Jesus being real. I have got hundreds of people to sit down with you and tell you their life story of change that has taken place. Men in this auditorium who were addicted to a bottle of alcohol, who when God came into their life, totally transformed, and they walked away with great victory. People in here who who dealt drugs until they met Jesus, and their life was changed and transformed. People who were addicted to pornography, and that was their only source of hope and joy until Jesus Christ came in and gave them a pure heart and a pure mind. People who looked for finances and relationships and empty sources of happiness, and they will tell you the details of their story, how Jesus Christ came into their life and totally transformed them. 
Abraham. If you're here today and Christ took your messy life and your messy story and has made it anew and you are now a new creation in Jesus Christ, would you just give a shout out to Jesus Christ right now? That's you. That's you. All around this room, there are people who lived messy lives who Jesus said, let's transform you. And guess what? They became Christians who have messy, messy lives. But God's grace abounds so much greater than the mess of our life. And so I'm here to tell you today as a friend and as a messenger of the gospel that Jesus wants to take your messy life and make it anew. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you renewal. He wants to give you transformation. And that can happen with his experience of grace in your life and you putting faith in him alone. Look at the last thing here is the fellowship of Jesus. In verse three and four, he comes to this end here of just this introductory part of the letter. And he says in verse three, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and is with his son, Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting about this fellowship because this fellowship is relational. This fellowship is one of great great importance. And he says, I want you, Christian, to experience this fellowship, this partnership, this connection with God and his son, Jesus Christ. So this fellowship and partnership, it means going in the same direction. It's like a, it's a mutual per- participation in a common goal, like a common cause. It's a shared life. You know, a relationship that does not have partnership or fellowship or connection. It's a relationship that begins to go in in different directions. It's a relationship that desires different things. There's no longer a shared cause. There's no longer things that are being desired the same. And what ends up happening to that marriage is that that selfishness comes in and, and now things are going the opposite direction. We just don't like the same things anymore. We just don't have things in common anymore. Uh, Yeah, you do. It's called a marriage. That's a pretty common thing together, and you're going to stick it through, and you're going to stick with it because that's God's design with your covenant that you made to one another and the covenant that you made to God. And so you're going to work through those difficulties, and you're going to figure out how to bring that back together because it's a removal of pride. It's a humbling of ourself. In the same way in a church setting, it says sometimes we want this song and sometimes they want that song, or sometimes they want this setting or they want that setting, or sometimes they want that look or they want that look. And all of a sudden, a church says, we no longer do we have the same cause. And you know what happens? It gets divided right the middle, and people think that they're right because they're closer to God. And they say, no, I'm right because I'm closer to God. And the reality is, is you're both farther from God than you ever should have been because God's design for the church was to be unified working together. And that's a humbling issue where we don't always push and get what we want in God's church. It's that we're unified on the gospel message, the name of Jesus Christ, and God our Father giving us the direction and peace to go. So here we would say that this this fellowship, it's relational, and relationship is important for all of us. Christian, if you're trying to live in isolation in your Christian journey, you're going to run into brick walls. You're going to run into some dark days. You are going to be discouraged and lost wondering which direction is up because you don't have the fellowship and partnership that you need in your life to cultivate spiritual growth. 
So here, this fellowship is relational, and John is saying that. He says in 1 Corinthians 6 to the Corinthian church, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. He said, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that fellowship, partnership, connection. That's my favorite word. And that's what the body of Christ should be pursuing. Not only is this fellowship relational, but it's, it's joyful. Look at verse number four. He says, not only this fellowship with us, that is truly fellowship with the Father and Christ. He says, so that these things I write unto you, why? That your joy may be full. That your joy may be complete. The theme of verses one through three is all about proclaiming the unchanging truth of Jesus Christ. That he's eternal, the message is unchanging, and it has historical proof. But then when we come to verse number four, he kind of wraps up this introduction by saying that this is designed so that our joy would be full, that it would be complete. You see, our joy is found in Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord gives us strength. That The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's my ability to function. It's my ability to move forward. James put it this way for us to find joy even in the various trials that we face in life. So while we're pursuing this joy that's being built in us and, and, and being um, matured in us, we would find that that joy comes even in the darkest moments. James was writing to Christians who were scattered everywhere because of persecution. It'd be like people coming into our church today and saying, if you meet in this room next week, we are going to shoot every one of you. We would probably scatter and decide, let's meet in the Redmond's home next week, and we'll meet in the Webb's home next week, and some of you will meet in the Simon's home next week. And we'll say, let's just scatter. And all of a sudden, people just began to scatter, and they were going through persecution. People hated them and were, were, were just coming after them. And he said, in the midst of all of that, let's find joy. The persecuted church, all in the 1040 window, tells us here in America, don't pray that the persecution is ever removed. Just pray for God's grace to be sufficient as we go through that. So the reality is that the ups and downs of life should not decide our joy. That our joy should find its great fulfillment and completion in the eternal existence of Jesus Christ, the fellowship that we have, the relationship and partnership that we have, and the experience that we have in Christ. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, he said, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Hmm. Understand that not everybody that hung out with Jesus had complete, matured, and full joy. There was a disciple named Judas who spent days and weeks and years with Jesus. He heard the parables, he heard the sermons, he heard the Special private instructions of love that Jesus gave to the 12 men called his disciples. Yet when it was all said and done, Judas wanted self-gratification and self-salvation. And instead of putting his trust in Jesus as his savior, he put it in his money bag of 30 coins of silver. Judas put everything of trust in his life in material goods so that when it was done in the end and he had betrayed Jesus Christ and given him over to the Roman soldiers, and by the way, don't blame Judas for the death of Jesus Christ, for Jesus gave himself to be a ransom for all mankind. Judas was there 
tormented by the reality and thought of what he had done and went and hung himself. And understand this reality of Judas, that he never put his trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, though he was with him day in and day out. Now, don't blame his suicide on his eternal existence in hell. Suicide does not send you to hell. But his decision not to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, his refusal of the gospel message, his denial of the grace of God is why Judas is in hell today. And the harsh reality that we kind of rub shoulders with of a Judas is that there are people every week filling in pews of churches just like this who think by going through the ritualistic religious movements of our day is all that they need to go to heaven. Until one day they're going to find out and figure out that their trust was in self and what good they could do. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So today is that opportunity for you to come to an honest place in your own mind that says, I believe in an eternal God. And I believe that God, his son, Jesus Christ, gave his life on the cross for my sins. As he was buried in that tomb, he came back to life three days later with victory that I can experience today. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for my eternal salvation. And I move away from any good that I think I can do. That's the moment of salvation for you. And for Christians here today, we find great hope and assurance as we now put into action the ability to prove it, that we're a child of God, that we believe in the eternal existence of God, that yeah, tomorrow we're going to face some major turmoil, but wait a minute, I serve an eternal great God, the creator of this universe. He's got this under control. I believe in the sovereignty of God. And so for Christians today with the eternal existence of God, what about the experience of Jesus Christ? Yeah, we weren't there with John and Peter and James to rub shoulders to hear the words of Jesus or to touch the physical body of Jesus or to look upon who Jesus was. But just in that way, we experience his work in our life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you being transformed continually every day to be more like Jesus. Don't put that on the back burner. Don't put it on the back shelf. Don't think it'll happen one day. Let's experience that together. Let's together prove it. That's for sure. Father, I thank you for using John as a tremendous writer of the gospel, as well as this letter that we can read together with the churches of Asia Minor from the first century. I know you used this letter as the word of God to help people to take steps of growth. And so today would be my prayer that you would use this for us. Here we are in 2020. Here we are thousands of years later, but we can see the same incredible truths. And at the end of the day, when all else fails, Jesus Christ never fails. I'm thankful for the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the experience that we can have and the fellowship, the partnership that we can have in Jesus. That partnership comes with relationship and joy. May we live that life. May we prove it. May, may, our, 
may our lives never represent confusion to people. Like, hmm, are they really a Christian? But may it just flow out of us. If there's somebody here today that's never experienced your grace, Lord, we invite them today to receive you as their very own. And so give us wisdom of how to help them. In Jesus' name.